Let's start with the backstory of this psalm, Psalm 51. For this psalm and for a number of others that follow it, there is a descriptive heading that makes a claim about who wrote it and what was happening at the time. So it appears to be part of a collection of psalms that were written by David under very particular circumstances. So for example, Psalm 52 was said to have been written by David when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has gone to Elimelech's house. And Psalm 54 was said to have been written by David when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, isn't David hiding among us? And Psalm 56 was written by David when the Philistines seized him at Gath. And Psalm 57 was written by David when he fled from Saul into a cave and so forth. In each case, David is named as the author, the writer of a psalm written at a particular moment in response to a particular circumstance. Now, most of those psalms I just mentioned reference a time when David was on the run from Saul before David was king, or when he was in the desert, or when he was fighting or preparing to fight his enemies. They are what we might call adventure psalms, although I know of no biblical scholar who calls them that. But in any case, David is on the move. He is calling out for help, for protection, for triumph over his enemies. He is calling for God to come to his side. And he calls for his faithless enemies to be confused and even condemned. But the first one in this collection of Psalms of David, Psalms attached to particular circumstances and situations, the one for this morning, while it is also said to have been written by David and attached to a particular moment in time, a particular circumstance, is different than the others. Psalm 51 has this heading, A psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him just after he had been with Bathsheba. You probably know the story. This isn't from a time when David was on the run, when he was hiding in caves and traveling the desert to escape those who would kill him. This wasn't from a time when David was chosen but not yet ascended to the throne. Rather, this was from a time when David was already king at the height of his powers, staying back in the palace while his men were out on the battlefield. And while he was there, he observed Bathsheba bathing and he wanted her. And so he summoned her and forced himself on her. And then things got even more complicated. Bathsheba had become pregnant. So David arranged for her husband Uriah to come and have leave time from the army to be with Bathsheba so that he and others would think that Uriah was the father of the child to be born. Uriah came as summoned, but would not go to be with his wife while his comrades were still on the battlefield. And because of his loyalty and responsibility and the fact that it ruined David's cover-up attempt, Uriah paid a terrible price. David arranged for him to be sent back up to the front lines. The other soldiers with him were ordered to pull back, and Uriah was killed. And then David took Bathsheba for his wife. So all of that happens and God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David and this is how the scriptures record that encounter in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When Nathan arrived, he said, there were two men in the same city, one rich, one poor. The rich man had a lot of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing, just one small ewe lamb that he had bought. 
He raised that lamb and it grew up with him and his children. It would eat from his food and drink from his cup, even sleep in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to visit the rich man, but he wasn't willing to take anything from his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had arrived. Instead, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the visitor. David got very angry at the man and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the one who did this is demonic. He must restore the hue lamb seven times over because he did this and because he had no compassion. You are that man, Nathan said to David. Nathan goes on to lay out the details of what David has done to expose his sins. And then he tells David about all the consequences that will follow for him and his family. And David, after listening to all of it, finally responds, I have sinned against the Lord. And then, apparently, he writes this prayer song to God, which begins with the words, Have mercy on me, God, according to your faithful love. Wipe away my wrongdoings according to your compassion, your great compassion. David does horrible things, shows no mercy, and then he asks for mercy. He has no compassion for others, but then he asks for compassion. And what happens? How does God respond? Yes, there are consequences for what David has done, consequences for him, for his family. There is death that follows death. But David is not cast out. He is not cast away from God. God grants him mercy. And what do you think about that? Standing to the side and looking at the story, what do you think about that? In a case like this, is such mercy a good thing? Is it fair or unfair? Should mercy in a situation like this be measured, withheld, doled out in proportion to the offense? Should it have a limit? Should someone be sure, be certain, absolutely certain that David has learned his lesson before he is granted mercy, before he's allowed back in? And how you answer those questions, how you respond, does it depend on who has your greatest sympathy? How you sympathize, who you feel most sorry for? If you take the side of Bathsheba, then is David worthy of mercy? If you take the side of Uriah, does David qualify for mercy? If you make yourself the judge, take the role of the divine in this story, does David get your mercy? If David is the one with whom you identify, is mercy in order? So you see how it might all shift according to where you stand, this matter of who gets mercy, this matter of who you want to be treated with mercy. My daughter has started her 30-hour online driver training course. Partway through Unit 1, there was a 35-minute video she had to watch about the dangers of texting and driving. 
Some of the people in the video were people who had tragedy visited upon their families because someone else was texting and driving and caused a car accident or hit a pedestrian. And some others in the video were persons who had done the texting while driving and had caused the accidents that injured or killed other people. One of those persons in the video was a young man in Indiana who was texting while he was driving into the morning sun and ran into an Amish family in a buggy, killing a teenager and two children and injuring four other people. In the video, he talks about the immediate aftermath of the accident the smashed buggy, the people thrown out into the ditch, the horse injured and thrashing about. He talks about being hysterical and asking himself, what have I done? The story of what happened to him afterwards and what the consequences were is not told in the video, although when I looked it up on the internet, apparently he was not charged with a crime. But what is in the story is a piece where he quotes a letter from the father of the children who were killed, a letter that that father wrote to him and his wife afterwards. It is a gentle letter, merciful. It was to my ear both compassionate and confusing. In the letter, the young man is not asked for anything There's nothing that suggests pain or anger or expectation or even hope that the young man will have learned something or will somehow live differently from now on. There's no attempt to make sense of what happened. Only these words, dear ones, trusting in God's ways, how does this find you? Hope all in good health and in good cheer. Around here, we are all on the go and try to make the best we can. I always wonder whether we take enough time with our children, wishing you the best with your little one and the unknown future. I think of you often, keep looking up, God is always there. When I said the letter is both compassionate and confusing, you can of course see the compassionate part, the undeserved and even unsolicited mercy. And maybe that's also what makes it confusing. It wasn't initiated by any request for forgiveness by the offender, and in the letter there is certainly no expectation from the injured parties for his transformation. Wishing you the best with your little one and the unknown future. In an Indianapolis Star newspaper article later on, the young man who was texting and driving and ran into the buggy killing the Amish family members When he is speaking of participating in the video that was made to show to driver's ed students, he is quoted as saying, I want them to be able to see the documentary and learn from my story that this is something I need to take seriously. This is something we need to prevent so that other people don't have to go through the type of experiences my family's been through for the last year and a half. I read that And then I read it again to be sure I was reading it correctly. This is something we need to prevent so that other people don't have to go through the type of experiences my family's been through for the last year and a half. I thought, what about the family of the children who were killed? Shouldn't the focus of prevention be on preventing things that have happened and might happen to folks like them? Where's the remorse, the guilt, the confession? 
Maybe he could have said, this is something we need to prevent so that other people don't have to go through what they went through. Did the Amish father's mercy mean nothing to him? Do you see how mercy can shift on us? And how we want to maybe instinctively attach it to other things like responsibility, confession, regret, apology, change of heart? Of course, that's how we feel about mercy offered to others. What about mercy for us? When I have done what I shouldn't have done, maybe what I didn't intend to do, or maybe even what I did intend to do and later regretted doing, will I be offered mercy? Can I ask for it? Should I ask for it? And if I do, will someone give me undeserved grace, unmerited forgiveness, mercy? Will God be merciful? And this question, will such mercy change me? If you want to think of mercy for yourself, then think of the worst thing you've done. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Think of that worst thing, and without denying it, raise your head, look up, remembering as Brian Stevenson puts it, that we are all more than the worst thing we have ever done. Stevenson, who works with death row inmates, persons for whom mercy is often unattainable, uses words like redemption, reconciliation, and repair to describe something better than revenge. He talks about not just justice and not just mercy, but just mercy, mercy that carries within it the hope of transformation. So Stevenson, who founded and runs the Equal Justice Initiative working with death row inmates in Alabama, tells the story of his first encounter with an inmate on death row and how as a young law student he was sent to tell the man that he was not at risk of execution in the next year. He had no law experience at that point, no expertise, just a message. You are not at risk of execution any time in the next year. The inmate asked him to repeat it three times to be sure he understood correctly, which Stevenson did. And then the inmate told him how thankful he was to have that news because he had been refusing visits from his wife and children, afraid that there would be a visitation time set, and that then when they came to see him, he would have to tell them that his execution date was coming. The year reprieve would allow him to invite them to come and see him without the execution hanging over the visit. Stevenson talks of 
tells of talking to the man for three hours, and then when the guards came to take the inmate away, they were rough with him, but the man said, don't worry about this, you just come back. And Stevenson ends the story this way, and then that man did something I have never forgotten. He threw his head back, he closed his eyes, and he began to sing. He sang, I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I'm onward bound, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. And that radicalized things for me, says Stevenson. That's when I realized I wanted to help condemned people to get to higher ground. But I also realized that my journey to higher ground was tied to his. And maybe that's the key to mercy. Mercy given and mercy received. That even from the bottom of the pit, we see some possibility of traveling to higher ground that condemnation is not the end game, that our journey to higher ground ties us together, depends on each other, that it moves with mercy. I do have a bone to pick with King David, with his statement to God in the psalm, I have sinned against you you alone. I want to ask him, what about your sin against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against the commander and the men that you dragged into the betrayal and murder of Uriah? What about your sin against the trust of all the people whose king you were? It seems to me that our sin against God is never separated from our sins against our neighbors. I have that bone to pick with him. But I also have some updraft, some delight from the words at the end of the passage for today. The words, return the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me with a willing spirit. I delight in David's idea, his testimony, his confidence that there is a way home, a way to wholeness, a way of return, a way to be sustained now and into the days ahead. A salvation that comes through the healing of the Spirit. And that mercy makes all of that possible. And so maybe David is praying, and we can too, not just to get off the hook, but to be allowed to come home, to return to joy. Mercy, deserved, undeserved, for me, for you, for the condemned, for the transformed, unexpected grace, the return of joy, the mysteries of hope and reconciliation, is it all possible? We pray it is. Lord, plant our feet on higher ground. Amen. Please join me in some moments of silent prayer 
and reflection.